0: Hello and welcome to the Dual Citizen podcast. My name is Anna Claire Noblett, and I am a college student and I simply love to ask questions about what it means to be an American citizen while also being a citizen of God's kingdom as a Christian. This podcast exists to equip you to engage in community-changing conversation and action. So we hope that's something you find here. Today, we are talking about a question that might be pressing on you a little bit, and it is, why should I vote? Our guest is Dr. Bruce Ashford, a very special author, professor, and expert in the way our spiritual identity impacts the way we engage culture. We're so glad you're here. Here's our conversation. Okay, today we have my new friend, Dr. Ashford from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he is the author or co-author of six incredible books that you all need to check out. Um, They are incredible resources for all of the topics that we have been talking about on The Dual Citizen. Um, One of my favorites that I've been reading this summer is called Letters to an American Christian. And this is actually how I um, found out about Dr. Ashford and reached out to him because he's put a lot of big ideas about how Americans or how Christians should engage with American culture and American politics um, into very just easy to read, easy to understand letters to a college student. And he works with college students and graduate students, obviously at the seminary. um, And so He's just an expert in a lot of things that we've been talking about but we're going to cover an important question today and that is why should I vote so we've asked um, why is America so polarized we've asked how do I disagree well in this polarized climate and then you know it's still I when I talk to people we feel kind of this burden whenever voting should really be more like a privilege and it is a privilege Our ancestors have fought for non-landowner suffrage, for women's suffrage, for African-American suffrage, Native American suffrage, and we celebrate them for this and we get to enjoy this privilege. But if we're honest, I think looking at this fall, looking at a ballot, uh, maybe even a local or state ballot when we're trying to choose representatives, um, it's kind of overwhelming and we feel less than equipped oftentimes to choose people to represent us in various ways. So a lot of times I talk to people and we kind of just want to check out. It's overwhelming, it's, it's just confusing sometimes. And so would it be better for us to just remove ourselves from the game? So that's our question today, why should I vote? So thank you so much, Dr. Ashford. Um, will you just give us a little bit of background on you and then jump right into something that you call in your books, the good of politics.
1: Yes. Well, Anna Claire, thank you so so much for having me on the show. It's good to be here. Um, I'm married uh, to Lauren with three children and I'm a professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm a uh, research fellow at the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics, Cambridge uh, in the UK and uh, fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I love and really, really feel called to um, bring my Christianity into conversation with matters of public import. Public interest, political, and otherwise, and that's why I like your your podcast. So uh, great to be on the show.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so so what about this question? Why should I vote? And and in your books, I kind of know your answer to this question, but I want you to share with our our audience something that you call the good of politics, and um, kind of going back to the biblical story and how that applies to. Um, the way we relate with the creation and culture around us.
1: Yeah. So, you know, the Bible is 66 books and numerous authors and multiple genres, but it, it comes together to form one sort of overarching narrative that we can call the true story of the whole world. And so it has a certain coherence to it. It fits. And uh, the first plot movement in that narrative is creation. And we can see that when God created the world, he ordered it. It it has a moral ordering. It has a physical and kind of scientific ordering, a regularity, you know, that allows us to do science. And and so just as God created different kinds of animals, for example, he also created different kinds of culture. Art and scientists, marriage and family, scholarship and education, sports and competition, politics and economics. All right. So you have these different kinds of culture. And to draw upon a a famous uh, prime minister of the Netherlands, who is also a Christian theologian, his name was Abraham Kuiper. Um, I like him a lot. I call him Father Abraham. Uh, he made a spatial analogy where he argued that these different types of culture God created are sort of, sort of like spheres. Not spheres that you would chuck, you know, but spheres, uh, S-P-H-E-R-E. And each of these spheres has its own center and its own circumference. So each sphere has its own center. In other words, its own reason for being. Right. So science exists to um, advance knowledge of the natural world. Um, Art exists to to produce or reflect on aesthetic excellence. Uh, The the local church exists to disciple its members around word and and, uh, table. Well, the purpose of government and politics, uh, the center of it, if you will, using the spatial analogy, is to achieve justice for the various communities and individuals under its purview. And so each sphere has its own center and then also has its own circumference. This is very important that if you draw a line, uh, kind of a radius from the center, you have a circumference, meaning that each sphere has limits to its jurisdictions. If, if each sphere has a unique reason for existing, that means that it also does not exist for other reasons. You know, the, the sphere of politics does not exist to m- control or dominate the family. Or, the, or sciences or the arts or whatever. And so that's creation. And then at the time of the fall, what we see is that human sin and idolatry corrupt every sphere of culture, politics and every other sphere. Now people tend to think that politics is inherently more dirty. Maybe in some ways it's more visibly dirty, but every sphere of culture is dirty. Every sphere is twisted and misdirected by sin. And now because of Christ's redemption, that's a third plot movement, uh, we as believers can enter into those spheres and honor him. And I think there's three, ways, three questions we need to ask in any given sphere of culture, or with any cultural activity, including politics, now that we're redeemed. Uh, the first is what is God's creational design for this sphere? And that is for politics to achieve justice, number two how has this sphere been corrupted and misdirected twisted and misdirected by human sin and then third how can i as a believer unhelp untwist what's been twisted or redirect what's been misdirected and those are the kind of questions we want to ask when we're interacting politically then finally in the bible's narrative we're told that christ will return one day uh, to install a one world government and one one party system in which he will be the king and we will be his subjects and he will lovingly reign over us and justice will roll down like the waters. And so our future is political, actually. The, the motif in the Bible of Jesus being a king and we being his ambassadors, is a, it's a major motif, a major thread. So it's good to interact in the political realm, not any, any more dirty per se than any other realm, more sinful, if you will. Sin corrupts every realm, and just like with every other realm, every other sphere of culture, we want to enter in, untwist what's been twisted and redirect what's been misdirected as a way of honoring Christ.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That that sounds, you know, like two things that I've been taught in completely separate settings. I've been taught, you know, I I my life is built on this biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, but then applying that to the world was created, the world fell, and then there's opportunity for redemption and restoration through the way that we re- relate with each other and that's the way we relate and handle community is is the basis of politics. That's its simplified form. And so it's really cool how how they can, because that's the story that we're building our life on. That's the way that we can view politics and just view the rest of the world and the way we interact with it. I think that because I have experienced the truth and equity and mercy and goodness that is the kingdom of God, that should drive me. And it is driving me to want to build my life and also see a country, you know, a community that is built on those good things because I know that they can't be found outside of um, people who have already experienced them in God's kingdom. So that's, that's kind of just, uh, that's what motivates me to not check out here. To say, I don't. I I want our leadership in the hands of people who know God, because those are the people who've experienced and know true justice, true righteousness, goodness, equity, and things like that, and that can can lead our country in a way that is towards those things. So for for us, and we've kind of talked about this, but we're in a pretty hostile environment. And so why is it important specifically for my generation? I'm 20 years old. Why is it important to courageously participate for our generation instead of shying away from this crossfire? And what is at risk if we as the church remove ourselves?
1: Yeah, I'll start with the second question. First, if we remove ourselves from this sphere, then we, you know, sort of actively remove God's, uh, you know, elements of God's glory from a sphere that he created. We intentionally decide that we will not bear witness in one of the good spheres that he created. And so I think that's that's not good. Um, I would point to John 20, 21, that uh, it's John's version of the Great Commission. When he came to his disciples after he rose from the dead, he uh, said, as the father sent me, so I send you. And he showed him the holes in his hands and his side. As if to say, just as God the Father sent me out as as His image, the image of the King of the world, so I send you as my image, as my ambassadors. And if they uh, if they crucified me, they're going to persecute you too. And so we can do what Jesus did: is we can even even when we are arguing for public policy conclusions that are at odds with many or most Americans way of thinking. Even when people think that we are backwards or that our beliefs are implausible or unimaginable or even reprehensible, we can speak with a prophetic confidence. We can speak the truth to power. Even if we're a minority, we can be sacrificial, the way Jesus was. We can be willing to, you know, realize that maybe we won't we won't get promoted uh, because of, of our Christian views, or maybe the, the going will be even more difficult for us in some way or another, or we might be ostracized socially, and that's that's fine. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is another passage of scripture. That's a political drama. In Daniel chapter 3, the king put a false political god in front of them and told them that they had to worship it, and they refused to. And they didn't do what most Americans uh, and most of our political leaders do. They didn't come unhinged and start berating the king and mocking him and insulting him and so forth. They just gave a quiet and powerful witness, and God, in the end, deemed their witness. We could do the same thing.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. One thing that I've heard a lot lately that is kind of becoming more and more part of the conversation in the wake of COVID-19 and in the wake of these regulations that are inhibiting churches a lot of times, I just have heard this conversation come up a lot about religious freedom. And I know this is something that you've thought deeply about. And so do you see the protection of religious freedom as one of the main concerns that Christians should consider when choosing representatives?
1: Yeah, so I want to, uh, let's talk about the, uh, you know, I want to point out that when our nation was founded and for many, uh, you know, a couple hundred years, religion was very important to most Americans. It is now less important to many Americans. Uh, The great philosopher, Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor talks about this a lot in his book, uh, Secular Age. And by a secular age, he doesn't mean that most people don't believe there's a God or doesn't mean that religious people aren't willing to talk about their faith in public. What he's saying is that Christianity has been displaced from the default position is now positively contested by dozens and dozens of ideologies, worldviews, hundreds of different takes and spins on life. And what that means is that Christianity, especially Christianity's teaching on gender and sexuality, um, it's considered implausible, even unimaginable. Like, how could you possibly believe something like that? You know, and and views that were universally agreed upon for the first few hundred years of our uh, nation's life are now considered evil. Sometimes. And uh, so religion is often viewed as a a form of evil, as something that's bigoted. And there are many people who want to get rid of strong forms of religion. I think that evil doesn't really come from within the human person. It comes from strong forms of religion, strong forms of the nation state, that it's evil is always systemic at heart rather than uh, something that is initially rooted in the human heart. And for that reason, um, there are many people who want to reduce religious liberty to freedom of worship. So what they mean is we're free to gather in our homes and whisper about Jesus, maybe in our churches and sing about him, but they do not want us to have free exercise of religion because they understand very well that religious liberty does conflict with uh, aspects of the new non-discrimination regime. So um, the non-discrimination regime will just continue to expand until there are just millions of things I'm exaggerating that can't be discriminated against there was a, a document called the United States by the called peaceful peaceful coexistence published by the commission on civil rights in which the chairman Martin Castro said something to the effect of this is a paraphrase not an exact quote that religious people need to stop hiding their hatred uh behind the phrase religious liberty they're really bigots and, and phobes and so forth yeah i have that open
0: right now i I was gonna quote that he said the phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy so long as they remain code words for discrimination intolerance racism sexism homophobia islamophobia christian supremacy or any form of intolerance
1: and and so what their religious liberty is enshrined in the constitution because the founders understood that religious belief is the deepest aspect of who we are and that it radiates outward into who we are. But there's a lot of people today who think that religion is not a deep aspect of who we are. It's something that can easily be discarded. And when a religion teaches something that conflicts with some of the most popular um, worldviews today, then religion needs to take the beating. So I would just encourage us to show people that religion is the most deeply rooted aspect of who we are and that we want it to be freely given and freely received. We don't want to enshrine a religion and make it the official religion of our country on the one hand. Uh, but on the other hand, we don't want to denigrate religious people and not let them act upon their their religious beliefs, such as closing their business on Sunday or expre- uh, you know, a businessman expressing his a, a certain Christian view on gender or sexuality.
0: Yeah, and you point out in your book that religious liberty is being threatened, oftentimes from the left and the right. And on the right, there can be kind of this danger and arguments that Our government should secure religious liberty for Christians or a certain group, but not for others. And so if we're going to be consistent across the board, this means loving our neighbors, even they don't think like us through fighting for their freedom, too. And then on the left, many people want to like you said, re- redefine re- religious exercise by just worship. And so and you pointed out that without freedom of religion, every other freedom is threatened as well. And we see that even with, also with the right to life that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. If, if we don't have the right to life, then for the unborn, then these are, these are two core, core rights that just once they are infringed upon, it, it's just a slippery slope. It's hard to navigate, um, but what, you know, as I've talked to college students kind of in similar seasons, I've heard a couple different perspectives. So I've heard that my faith and my politics are kind of two separate parts of me and my life, and I can go to church. Like This is my spirituality, my personal faith, but I'm still going to be, there's not a lot of intersection like that is informing the way that I view these hot topic, popular things that I'm seeing on social media. So how do we kind of address that view? And is there something that should be changed about that or or kind of rethought from that perspective? And then I'll give you another one to address too.
1: Yeah. So the first view is one that thinks we can keep faith and politics separate. One of the most famous people who holds that view is a guy named John Rawls. He's passed away now, Harvard political philosopher. You can look him up on Wikipedia. He's wearing a pair of very severe spectacles and I respect him for it. <laughs> and uh, he's, Anyway, he's very, very well known for arguing that I'm going to paraphrase him here, that religion is kind of like a coat that you wear. And whenever you go into the public square, you take the coat off and that's going to help you achieve justice. So my response to that is religion is actually not like a coat that can be taken on and off. Religion is a little bit more like your skin, you know, that can't be ripped off. It's part of who you are. Or to use the Bible's analogy, religion is, is embedded in the heart. And in the Bible, the heart is the central organizer of human existence. Everybody's religious. Atheists are religious, agnostics are religious, because the essence of religion is not the worship of a supernatural deity, it's the worship of something or someone. And everybody is a worshiper. All of us have something in life that is premier, that's ultimate. It might be sex or money or power or comfort or success. It might be a person uh, or a group of people that we want to impress, But or it might be the God of Jesus Christ or the Allah of Muhammad, but everybody is a worshiper. So if you wanna find somebody's religion, Look at their God, whatever it is they've absolutized or made ultimate. And then uh, that thing reigns in their heart, rules, and radiates outward into everything they do, including their politics. And so if a person's Christianity is not coming out in their politics, then whatever their real God is, is going to come out in in their politics. So religion and politics cannot be separated, even though church and state can be. Those are two separate issues.
0: Right. And that might be a conversation for another day. (laughs) So... What about someone who would say, my faith in politics, or I'm not going to be involved with politics because it's temporary, it's broken, it's it's sinful and these systems aren't going to help or change anything so i'm just going to focus on things that really matter i'm not going to vote
1: yeah so i mean one thing to say is that god gives sort of different callings to different people and some people would be more involved in the political sphere and some some people would be less involved person who is more involved in the political sphere obviously would be elected officials civil servants political consultants political journalists you know policy experts Professors of political philosophy or political theology are more involved. But uh, for the ordinary, sort of everyday American, I think it's wise to have at least the minimal level of involvement of voting, that we're in this rare situation in history, the past few hundred years, where citizens have a say. And it seems to me, unless there's some pressing reason not to vote, and there might be, and I'll mention that in a moment, uh, that one of the regular things we should do is cast a vote. Now, and usually we're casting a vote for the person who we think has a chance of winning and who we want to win, but sometimes we know that person is not going to win and we might vote for them anyway. That's a way of expressing our conscience. There have been a couple of times in history where even in recent history, large um, numbers of people in the past 20, 30 years have stayed home and haven't voted at all. And I think that's actually uh, can be a legitimate form of protest. We know a lot of working class people just didn't show up to vote for the last 30 years because there was nobody who was really speaking to them and they did show up in this last election to vote for Bernie or or Donald. And then there may be conscience reasons where every once in a while a person says, you know what, the two candidates are on offer. I can't in good conscience vote for one of them. That's happened historically. And and that's acceptable. But I think the general thing we want to do is to get out there and vote. And remember, voting is not just for presidents. We're voting for congressmen. We're voting down the ballot. We have State level elections for state representatives. Very, very important stuff. Learn your state politics and even more important, learn your politics of your town or city. You can get a lot done in um, your town or city. National politics is a dumpster fire. Very difficult to influence it. But local politics is a lot less so. And it's a chance where you can interact with people and your Christian love and, and grace can come through and you can make a real difference in things.
0: Yeah, I love that you pointed that out because it's, you know, we're not going to find a candidate on the national level maybe that that totally aligns with any of us, but we, we have a lot of options and we have a lot of people whose job it is to represent us. And if we want to be represented, we've got to get to know them. We've got to do our research and we're going to talk about this in one of our next episodes, just how to do that. But it really is so important that we are familiar with and we do the work of finding out who who's going to represent us locally, who's going to represent us at the state level. And, and there are some incredible people who have committed their lives to this. So we're going to hopefully get to know them a little more this fall and, and jump into that. That's something that's been daunting to me, but I'm trying to do my research well. So, yeah, so maybe maybe people of those opinions of you know, my faith and politics are two separate parts of me in my life or I'm just not going to get involved. Uh, I think that was great encouragement for both of them. And of course there's freedom like you said to be heard by refraining or be heard by kind of not voting sometimes, but there's always an opportunity if we want to be represented, I think we have a responsibility to use that privilege. So going into November, with many of us being first-time voters like me, um, what? advice would you leave us with?
1: Yeah, I think one piece of advice is try not to behave like our political leaders, like many of them. Um, Try not to take all of your cues from the people we see on TV politics shows. Try not to take all of your political news and opinion from the same outlets. I guess I'm saying try to cut your own wake a little bit. Find some trustworthy thinkers, Christian thinkers even, not exclusively Christian. Find several of them and begin to form your own opinions and don't behave badly like everyone else is behaving from the top down. We wanna behave the way Jesus did. He he gave a powerful witness because he combined truth and grace. He always exhibited truth and that he spoke the truth about reality and did so with such power that they actually killed him. So he was powerfully prophetic but he was also had a gracious uh, demeanor in that he was not degrading and demeaning toward people who are different than him, toward people who are outcasts, even toward people who came against him. And so it is possible to combine truth and grace. Truth without grace in politics makes a person a political bully or jerk. And I think our Facebook pages and our cable network shows and our political leaders are full of that, political bullies and jerks. But grace without truth makes us political wimps and non-entities. And that's, I think, a big temptation, too, is to just be a gracious and nice person and not be willing to, to speak the truth about reality. But we need to speak the truth about reality, that God created the world and ordered it and designed it in a certain way. And that if people flout reality by making bad laws that go against the natural law and the moral law, and if people flout reality by living their lives against God, they need to know they can't flout reality forever with impunity. The universe is built in such a way that it's going to punish them for it. They won't be able to truly flourish. So a good way to love people is to tell them if you want to flourish, then live in conformity with God's law. And you actually, by the way, can't do that on your own. But because of Christ Jesus, your heart can be transformed and you can begin to live in conformity with God's law. And so that's my encouragement: is to uh, speak the truth about reality, do it graciously, point people to Christ.
0: Fantastic! Thank you. And that is our truth that we're clinging to: is that what everyone in the in the world is looking for—justice, peace, unity, rights, and and ultimately love—is is what we have. And so we know the way, and it is the only way. And. Uh, Matthew 6:33, we talk about this with the dual citizen but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well and that's the reason why we don't have to worry and that's the reason why you know we want we should share this this kingdom that we're part of because what the rest of the world is aching and longing for is all there and we we just have to share that good news and so thank you so so much for just taking some time to talk with us for sharing um, just the insights that you have worked so hard to to kind of master and, and wrap your head around and we just thank you for for sharing that wisdom with us
1: thank you it's great to be on the show for any of you who are interested in reading more I recommend uh, Letters to an American Christian, a series of 27 letters I wrote to a college student advising them on, on a political matters. And we had a lot of fun in the book, a lot of jokes and, and back and forth and banter. Um, and then also sometimes write at bruceashford.net. You can find me there. Thanks so much.
0: All right. Thank you. Check out those resources, guys. Through this conversation, I learned that though humans and every human institution is broken, God's glory can be displayed in and through us because even the most polluted of systems, politics, is part of his design. We should get involved to fight for things that reflect God's character, defend the defenseless, and preserve religious freedom, but we should continue to seek his kingdom first because that is where our ultimate identity and fulfillment is. I'm so thankful for the Anchored Passion team for making this episode available. Be sure to check out more resources on anchoredpassion.com. Thank you guys for listening. See you soon.